Hi, this is Matthias from the Common Thread Podcast. We are here in Washington, D.C. at the State Department, and we are speaking with Foreign Service Officer Ethan Glick. Um, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. I, 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 I'm delighted to be here and looking forward to this conversation and looking forward to answering your questions and, uh, you know, having a great conversation. Okay. So, so Matthias, you know, introdu introduced this nicely and said we're at the State Department, but, but very specifically, where, where are we within the State Department? What is, what is um, ISN uh, and, and what do you work on specifically? So currently we're sitting on the third floor uh, on the, the two corridor, which uh, borders the, the sort of C Street entrance of the department, and that's the main diplomatic entrance to the Department of State. So current, and we're sitting in a suite that belongs to the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation. I currently work in this bureau, but as a Foreign Service officer, I have assignment after assignment after assignment. So I don't stay in any particular assignment for more than two or three years, sometimes one year. Um, but the current assignment that I have is the Deputy Director of the Office of Weapons of Mass Destruction Terrorism within this bureau. So the main things that our bureau works on, uh, you know, have to do with the non-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. So nuclear, chemical, biological, and uh, explosive weapons. Um, there's a number of regimes that have uh, sort of built up over the years that the U.S. is a party to. Mm -hmm. And we work to try to make sure that um, the most dangerous weapons that there are are kept as tightly confined and out of the hands of uh, dangerous regimes and dangerous people. My office specifically works on uh, a few different things within this area. Um, so we work to prevent um, nuclear smuggling, for instance, and that involves maybe sort of the theft of radiological or uh, nuclear material that could be used in an improvised nuclear device or in a radiological dispersal device, which is sometimes mm -hmm. called a dirty bomb. Mm -hmm. Uh, we also manage the U.S. co-chairmanship of an initiative called the Global Initiative to Combat Nuclear Terrorism. And we also work with a number of countries to sort of increase their preparedness in case there is an attack by a weapon of mass destruction so that the countries in question are able to respond to that effectively and minimize the loss of life and the destruction of property and, you know, sort of the most... Mm -hmm. Uh, severe effects of what would happen if one of these weapons actually did get used. So we work both on the what we call pre-detonation side to again try to keep the spread of these materials from um, you know increasing as well as on the post-detonation side so that if God forbid there is an attack using one of these weapons that countries are prepared and that the United States is prepared to assist countries, um, you know, with whatever they may need. And as we know, when there's disasters around the world, whether it's a natural disaster like a tsunami, countries often do look to the United States to assist. Right. So um, that's kind of it in a nutshell. I'm happy to get into, you know, more kind of nuts and boltsy, what, what do yeah. we do every day, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, may, maybe that sparks some questions in your mind. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, the first question for me is that, you know, as a Foreign Service officer, you have, you've, you have and have had and will continue to have various occupations in a broad array of domains. Um, we, we were told that, that your, your function is a generalist function by nature, 
And I think my first question is how how does that affect the way that you approach your job, just in terms of familiarizing yourself with new material, familiarizing yourself with a new occupation? It sounds like it's a constant process of education. Yeah. And also, just just for the sake of our audience, what what have your uh, tours been? What was your your first uh, your first assignment back? In the State so did Department? did they show you my bio? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, yeah. Really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you know that my first assignment was yeah. in Albania. Yeah. Um, uh, I I've been in the department for about eighteen years. Yeah. Uh, so this it was right at the end of the Clinton administration when I came in. Um, most entry-level Foreign Service officers do at least one assignment as a consular officer overseas. So this means um, visas, mm -hmm. and it also means assisting American citizens who may be in trouble overseas. So if you're traveling in Mexico or if you're traveling in Europe or wherever, mm -hmm. there's usually going to be a U.S. embassy there. We have embassies in most countries around the world. If you lose your passport, for instance, you would go to the embassy and say, I lost my passport, I need another one. And they're going to say, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. No, they, they, will, they will do everything that they can to mm -hmm. help. Right. Um, sometimes Americans go missing overseas uh, and their family uh, gets in touch with the embassy and, you know, wants the embassy to sort of work with the host government or work, you know, various angles to try and locate a person. Sometimes people get in trouble and have everything stolen and they need to arrange a loan. That's sort of the last resort that a consular officer would have to kind of loan directly money from the U.S. government to a person. But that is an in extremist solution if needed. Um, and then the visa side of the consular officer function is, you know, doing a lot of visa interviews. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the way the law is, and immigration is quite controversial, as right. we know, and visas are very controversial, uh, or can be, and in much in the news. And so there's two different categories of visas. One is an immigrant visa, and one is a non-immigrant visa. Mm -hmm. So the way the current law, under current law, um, there are certain categories of people who are entitled to petition for an immigrant visa. Um, you know, close family members, if an American marries somebody overseas, then they would be able to petition to have their spouse uh, get an immigrant visa. And then non-immigrant visas are just the temporary visits. So in right. all categories, whether somebody's just coming on vacation or going to an international conference as a business trip, um, or students, you know, and there's several other categories mm -hmm. of the temporary visas. So that was my first assignment. I did that for about a year and a half in Albania, and then short term in Kosovo and Macedonia, uh, and also a little bit of time in New Zealand uh, nice. during that first first stint. Um, <clears throat> and then I sort of pivoted and shifted gears and um, came back here. The department taught me Russian, and I went to work in Kazakhstan. And um, when I was at the embassy in Kazakhstan, I was a political officer. And my focus was kind of on the internal political situation in the country. So a lot of human rights issues that took place in Kazakhstan, a lot of some non-proliferation issues that we work closely with the bureau that I'm in now. Um, but again, I sort of was, my main focus was the internal political scene. So kind of translating for Washington and translating for people who may not be very familiar with what goes on and you know, what after all is a country that's very far away from, right. from the United States, you know, um, the, you know, what's going on day to day that maybe you're not going to read in the newspaper. You mm -hmm. know, we 
had contacts and we talked to people and you know we had a pretty good sense of what was going on um, <clears throat> and then my third assignment I went to uh, Russia so I followed one Russian speaking assignment with a second so I got pretty good at Russian mm -hmm. uh, by the end of these four years and at our embassy in Moscow I was focused more on external politics so okay. kind of Russian foreign policy um, and then have I sparked any other questions yet? I mean, what, what, what particular, I mean, obviously, in terms of uh, Russian foreign policy, uh, what particular time frame are we talking about here? So I was in Russia from 2004 to 2006. Okay. Uh, okay. It was a while ago, but, you know, I think, I think Russia obviously has been a lot in the news and right. a lot on people's right. minds, um, you know, over the, the past year, um, mm -hmm. you know, maybe even longer. Uh, I would say a lot of the trends that we're seeing in terms of the deterioration of the relationship between the United States and Russia were in evidence uh, during the time when I was there, but, you know, it certainly was not as severe as it is today. And, you know, kind of the very low level of cooperation and trust that exists between our two countries today um, is, is, you know, much more acute than it was during the time that I was there. Mm -hmm. What, what did you sense in, in your interactions um, in your action interactions on the ground there uh, at the time because I know I know I mean it's it's been a trend that's reported on with each administration that comes in that tries to do their own their own version of a reset with Russia um, and at that point you're already into Bush's second term and, and there's already some some fissures um, in the relationship so so on the ground what was your sense of what was your sense of it so you know those who kind of study uh, Russia or mm. the U.S. Russia relationship, you know, can can recount a series of things that mm -hmm. sort of took place. And I'll I'll correct you a little bit. Mm. I I was there during the election that Bush Bush was reelected. Yeah. So um, you know, I got there during his first term. Okay. Oh, okay. Mm. But I would say the majority of my time there was was in his second term. Yeah. Um, you know in terms of the things that people commonly recount as to, you know, how did we get here from, you know, mm -hmm. inviting Russia into the G7, right. you know, at yeah. the end of the, the Clinton administration and, you know, really so, trying to assist them in any way that we can to, um, you know, solidify their democratic institutions and to, you know, try to foster economic growth and mm -hmm. development and prosperity so that, you know, they're going to be a happy right. uh, member of the family of nations and, you know, that will be sort of like-minded on, on international issues, you know, from, from kind of that where we were in the 90s mm -hmm. to where we are today. Again, you know, a lot of people look to um, things like the what, what's called the Rose Revolution mm -hmm. in Georgia mm -hmm. in 2003 when you know, from the U.S. perspective, a corrupt regime uh, was confronted by, you know, mass protests and people power and, a, um, you know, an election that appeared to have been rigged and, you know, a, a kind of unpopular regime was overthrown and, mm -hmm. and replaced by someone who promised to confront corruption and to, you know, focus on democratic institutions. So that's sort of the way we saw what happened in Georgia in 2003, whereas Russia saw this as the U.S. has meddled in our neighborhood and, and engineered this result that uh, has led to the loss of a, you know, sort of ally or friendly regime to them. 
so that that was sort of a big um, you know waypoint on this path from again the 90s to where we are today um, you know the Russians and President Putin I think commonly point back to uh, what happened in Georgia and the series of similar things that happened in Ukraine and in Kyrgyzstan and, right. and yeah. elsewhere. This is a phenomenon that they call color revolutions. Mm -hmm. and, and I think because, you know, it was called the Rose Revolution and right. what happened in Ukraine in 2004 was called the Orange Revolution. Right. So they sort of adopted this moniker of color revolution. So when they right. when they talk about color revolutions, that's what they're talking about. Right. Uh, and it's sort of shorthand for seeing the world quite differently than we do. Um, and, you know, we're sort of not going to compromise on our, uh, mm -hmm. you know, core values that want, you know, um, legitimate institutions to represent people and for people to, you know, um, you know, have a voice in their political process and for corruption to be reduced and, um, you know, and Russia is not going to compromise, uh, at least, you know, w we find ourselves in divergent sort of positions uh, in terms of the way we see this um, even today. And, you know, again, Russia views this as uh, sort of um, meddling in its what it yeah, sometimes called its near abroad, or Russia would call its near abroad, or its sphere of influence, or in border countries, or, you know, countries that were part of the Soviet Union. So, you know, um, <clears throat> it's been hard to get past this sort of almost irreconcilable, um, you know, division in, in our viewpoints. Uh, and, and this is, you know, this difference in viewpoints is sort of, um, I'll use the word infected, other aspects of our relationship, because what it's done is it's reduced trust. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when your level of trust has gone down, it's real easy for, you know, things that may seem one way to us to appear quite di differently to them. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, and and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of leave it at that right. because, you know, I, I would say that's significant enough that, you know, a few of the other things out there that, you know, right. also constitute waypoints on right. how we got to where we are. Um, this is maybe the most significant. Sure. And so so after after your experience in, in Russia, did you continue kind of in the Russian language trend or did you pivot towards something entirely different? So the beauty of being a foreign service officer is you're really not bound, like you're not, um, <clears throat> you're not required to keep going in the same direction and in fact you're encouraged to get a, a kind of pretty broad array of experiences. So after, um, after my time at MC Moscow, I came back here. I had my only assignment in Washington up until the present, uh, and I was the desk officer for Indonesia. Interesting. So that was something that was a little bit different. Completely different. Completely different. <laughs> yeah, and, and in fact, that was my only um, <clears throat> that was my only assignment working with our East Asia and Pacific bureau. Uh, but Indonesia was fascinating, and you know, especially coming from Russia, which again, as I mentioned, was already sort of starting to trend the wrong way mm -hmm. uh, to Indonesia, where, if anything, the trend was positive mm -hmm. right. uh, and, you know, getting better all the time. And our job was basically, how do we solidify this trend? How do we look for areas where we can cooperate more with this country on, you know, things? And we had a lot in common with Indonesia. It's the world's, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's the... Um, 
third largest democracy. It's been a while yeah. since I did Indonesia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's the third largest democracy in the world right. after yeah. India and the United States. Right. So, right. you know, that in and of itself, and their democracy was getting stronger. Right. So they were committed to their democratic institutions and to strengthening them and to holding ever freer and fairer elections. Right. And, you know, things things were great. Um, so we look to cooperate on things like, you know, deforestation. Yeah. You know, they, you know, their alarming growth of, you know, the right. uh, uh, forest being, you know, harvested illegally and, um, mm -hmm. you know, protection of coral reefs and, mm -hmm. you know, combating terrorism. There was a, you may right. remember the Bali yeah. bombing, yeah. And, which sort of emanated from Indonesia uh, back in 2003, I think. Can I ask? So after after two assignments in, in Russian speaking in Russian speaking countries um, in the same region of the world, um, this goes back to our early qu earlier question about a learning curve and how the department transitions. You obviously you mentioned it encourages you to, to switch areas and, and to and to learn new new areas of expertise. Um, mm -hmm. What was the learning curve like on that transition, specifically because you weren't necessarily on the ground in, in Indonesia? You were you were a desk officer working here from Washington. Mm -hmm. um, how did you get up to speed in a way that allowed you to, to function in the role? Well, so I'm glad you reminded me of that question. Because yeah. as I told you at the time, it's a great question. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, thanks for reminding me. So it can be difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and quite frankly, stepping into any new assignment, there's going to be a learning curve, and right. you're, you're not going to be at your peak effectiveness, um, which is why, you know, you, you lean on people that have been there for a while, uh, and, you know, eventually you become the subject matter expert, and you become the guy who other people are leaning on. And right. that's, you know, sometimes it's it seems like a painful process. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it seems like, you know, I wish I was just at that stage when, you know, I was, uh, you know, as smart as those around me about um, about the situation or about the country or about the issues that we're working on. But, you know, I think what gets you through that is, you know, especially the longer that you do this and the more that you go on is, you know, you have to kind of have confidence in yourself and the fact that you have you've you've done it before. Um, you know, means that you'll be able to do it again. So even in, you know, when it's, again, right at the beginning and, and you don't know a lot uh, and you're having to ask questions to the people around you or, you know, the people below you or the people above you, eventually you're, you're going you're gonna to be able to be the smart one. And, you know, so I can't tell you it ever gets easy. It's mm -hmm. not easy. Um, but, you know, I think it's healthy and I think, it's a challenge and you know I think we always need to kind of challenge ourselves and the fact that this career has challenge built in right uh, is one of the things that's really appealing about it to me oh, absolutely I mean it sounds like it kind of sounds like a uh, almost mm -hmm. a, a virtuous cycle of being groomed then grooming then being groomed again grooming further and and essentially that's that's the way you kind of navigate the world and it and it sounds like you you, you really develop a, a culture both within the organization and then a personal culture of being able to receive that kind of instruction and then being able to teach yeah i think that's exactly right um you know i i i think you know certainly i i sort of have internalized uh you know this model mm -hmm. uh, as as I was describing and you I think just very well kind of encapsulated but I yeah I think it's part of the foreign service culture 
uh, as well. Um, you know, and I, I think, frankly, it's the part of the intent of, uh, you know, the Congress when it created the Foreign Service was to have this sort of culture of, you know, constantly building expertise and constantly, you know, again, not just building it, but, you know, imparting it. Right. Uh, so, you know, diplomacy is about is the business of you know working successfully with others and convincing others mm-hmm. to you know to do things that you know they may not initially view as in their interest and it's about persuading them why it's in their interest to to do something that we want them to do right so so the tours we've discussed to this point have all been um, country specific and, and there's a learning curve there um, your current your current assignment is obviously issue specific, so so it has a, a greater geographical breadth, um, and, and also I'm, I'm sure a, a greater technical focus. Um, so if you can talk about coming into this position and, and what issues it, what issues you were <clears throat> facing coming into that, so yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> we skipped over a few of the countries right, that right, I've been yeah, in. Yeah. And oh, we'll, go, we'll get back we, to that. Yeah, don't worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah I'm, I'll be delighted to come back to them, but yeah. but. Another great question. Um, you know, I would say that one advantage that you have as you go along in your career is that, um, you know, you will be in positions of increasing responsibility and increasing authority. So the further you go, uh, and right now I'm the deputy director in an office of about 35 people. So when you get to this point, you have a lot of people that are very interested in you, uh, you know, climbing that learning curve quickly as mm-hmm. well because the more you know the more of assistance you're going to be to you know the people who who maybe need someone to weigh in at a key point you know as they're working an issue so what i'm saying is you have more help from right, people right. as you go along you know you have all the people who sort of are subordinate to you who are you know, educating you as a actual part of their job, as mm-hmm. opposed to just sort of the osmosis that as you're younger, uh, you, you have to sort of um, acquire knowledge and experience and skills yourself. So the way our model is and the way our system works is that, you know, they're, it's, it's very much in their interest that, you know, their, their new deputy director gets smart quick right. and that they're doing everything that they can to help their new deputy director gets smart quick. Yeah. So, you know, even if if it's, um, you know, preparing talking points in advance of a meeting or, um, you know, providing briefings, and you don't get this when you're, you know, earlier on in your career because there's nobody sort of that is as interested. They don't care if you, if you don't, you know, get it quick right. because you know, other people are going to fill in. But, you know, when, when you're in a position of more responsibility, uh, you know, it's it's built in that there's you have to represent the interests of the office and they want you to be able to do that well. So in terms of kind of the, you know, specialized knowledge of what we do, I would say that there there are technical components to, you know, the, the things that I described, again, the kind of combating nuclear terrorism and, mm-hmm. you know, reducing... Um, uh, or building countries' capabilities to be able to confront nuclear smuggling, or building capabilities to respond to a WMD attack. Um, you know, the State Department 
is never looked to as, as sort of the technical expert. So we have colleagues that are in the Department of Energy, for instance, or in even in the Department of Defense or in the FBI when it comes to sort of law enforcement capabilities or you know how to how to put a criminal case together mm-hmm. uh, or how to advise a country to you know adopt these particular laws or these particular you know we don't have to worry about having I mean nobody in my office and nobody in the department has to worry about having you know that really in-depth expertise on on those things what we have to worry about is is being able to enlist the right agencies and mm-hmm. bring them to bear and put them together as a delegation we have to know enough to be able to lead that delegation, but we don't have to know enough to be able to speak as authoritatively to each individual piece of it mm-hmm. as the rest of them do. So, you know, it's about cooperation. It's about diplomacy. Diplomacy takes place at home yeah. as much as it takes place with foreign right. partners. Interesting. I, I think that's an underappreciated part of your function, actually, is is to be able to kind of grease the wheels of operation in terms of facilitating a particular outcome and a, and a successful one as well. Um, I think I think uh, I think it, with regard to your particular function right now, um, I'm curious about how to what extent, um, because obviously it's a very sensitive issue, particularly mm-hmm. in terms of uh, public perception. Um, is that is that something that that was particularly difficult to adapt to in terms of managing? Okay, well, this is a, this is a really sensitive issue. We have to be very careful about you know how we portray things, how we go about doing our business, because you know WMDs tend to raise alarms very quickly, regardless of where you are in the world. I, mean, I, I think you did a little bit of studying before you <laughs> you, you came to this conversation. Um, that's a great question, um, and it's, you know, I think uh, the sort of question that, you know, m- maybe uh, you you did some research or, mm-hmm. you know, you studied a little bit to, to be able to ask such a good question. Um, so let me start with this. When it comes to nuclear security, um, you know, I don't, it, I don't know if you noticed or, you know, how well popularized it was but under the last administration the obama administration there were a series of nuclear security summits mm-hmm. yeah and these were very high profile events and they drew together uh leaders um you know at the summit level from you know a number of countries more than 40 countries uh, by the last one um to redouble efforts to ensure that you know nuclear materials and nuclear facilities were safe, you know, against the threat of terrorism. So sort of it was already in the public eye is is part of the point. And, you know, I don't think that it's particularly delicate or controversial to be able to talk about these issues because, Mm -hmm. as you sort of pointed out, people do have, I think, an instinctual understanding of the importance of... um, protecting and and securing um, you know nuclear materials and nuclear know-how um, you know I think the threat of weapons of mass destruction is also quite well known yeah uh, mm-hmm. you know I think one has to be careful but the most care one has to take is to make sure that we are not contributing to I guess, a sense of public concern mm-hmm. that that an attack may be imminent or an attack may be likely or 
I think what our responsibility is, and you know, it's pretty easy to do because we have so many resources and so many people devoted to this, both within the State Department and within the U.S. government, but is to be able to, you know, continue to provide the assurance that your government is doing more on this issue and to, you know, make sure that we don't have such an attack uh, or that materials are safe so that I think we can quite credibly, you know, talk about the things we are doing and, and kind of add to that you know the layers of reassurance that right. that because you're right i you know i think it would be easy for people to you know begin to think uh that this threat may be greater than it is what we do we call this a you know a low probability high impact right sort of mm -hmm. threat so it's unlikely that there will be um you know uh an attack with nuclear materials or an improvised nuclear device but the impact of, of that happening would be so severe, both economically and psychologically and, you know, in terms of physical damage, mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, it doesn't matter how low the probability is. Right. We need to devote resources and we need to devote attention to, you know, making sure that that risk goes down even further. The risk is not zero, but it is low enough that People shouldn't worry and, right. you know, stay up at nights um, thinking that this is going to happen. Um, I think the, the general perception of, of nuclear security issues, which is which is perfectly accurate, is that it's it's generally a state uh, state on state matter, and that comes largely from our history in the Cold War, and then and then what we're experiencing right now with different states like Iran or North Korea. But one of the things that became very clear um, following 9/11 is that we also have to consider um, non-state actors and, and non-state organizations um, when we're talking about securing nuclear materials. And, and I was curious if you could speak to the ways in which we can cooperate with other states that are, are either our allies or, or our partners in some way um, to ensure the security of nuclear materials. And, and in reference to, in reference to, um, to, to the, those nuclear security summits, um, how do we how do we lend credence to to the way we go about that um, if we don't have have the support from from a state like Russia who who in the instance of the, the final nuclear security summit didn't even even didn't even participate? That's a good question, and you know I mean quite honestly most of what my office does mm -hmm. responds to your question. Right. So you know. My office is all about finding ways to cooperate with countries to reduce the threat that terrorists can get their hands on nuclear materials or, you know, again, nuclear know-how. Mm -hmm. um, we, first of all, have uh, joint action plans with 14 countries that are the most sort of, or among the most at risk for having, you know, nuclear materials smuggled within their territory or across their borders so that they'll be able to stop it. Mm -hmm. And we help them build their capabilities to do that. And so we have 14 of those uh, joint action plans right now. We're constantly looking to um, conclude additional ones so that we can, um, you know, bring capabilities to bear and bring cooperation or strengthen cooperation with countries that may also be at risk. Um, you know, for the, for this kind of phenomenon. And then, you know, I mentioned the global initiative to combat n nuclear terrorism, which the United States 
co-chairs. What I didn't mention is that the other co-chair is Russia. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this is, and in fact, during my time um, in Moscow in 2006, we actually agreed with Russia to create this institution. It, I don't want to really call it an institution. It's not a. It's not an international organization. It's not like the United Nations. It wasn't mm -hmm. created by treaty. It was created by, you know, common interest and you know just mutual um, uh, kind of consent. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't have the same standing in terms of, um, you know, a building or, um, you know, resources that, the, you know, uh, that the initiative itself owns. Um, so it'll always be voluntary. It'll always be dependent on, you know, it's still meeting the interests of the co-chairs and the member countries. But there's 88 countries that are part of this right now, and and it's a very active initiative, and you know it has uh, working groups that do nuclear forensics cooperation, um, sort of that response and mitigation lane, which we also work bilaterally with a you know another focus in my office, and uh, nuclear detection, so that you know countries have literally the equipment in place to be able to detect if. You know, there's materials that are, we say, out of regulatory control, right. mm -hmm. uh, which means that they're not being any longer controlled by a state. Because quite frankly, you know, another part of your question, um, yes, we do have to work with states because that is where, you know, the material and the know-how resides. Right. Um, Non-state actors really have not gotten their hands on, on mm -hmm. this. Uh, up to this point, and again, part of part of our job, mm -hmm. a big part of our job, is to keep it that way. Right. But which 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 presents a particular difficulty in states <laughs> that are that are experiencing you know um, internal conflict uh, and, and may not have control over all of their um, geographical territory and resources. Are you thinking of one in particular? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know uh, which one I would be thinking of. No, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I am, I am for sure, and, and it's it's certainly a concern I think for the American public um, uh, to to consider not just in the field in the realm of, of nuclear material, but something that's that's been a concern since the anthrax scare that happened not too long after 9/11 um, is is biological weapons and the potential proliferation of biological weapons in, in situations where where the situation on the ground it's not exactly clear um, um, who has access to to what facilities and, and what capabilities. So, several parts to your question. Yeah. I guess <clears throat> the first thing I would say is one of the most robust partners that we have in my right. office in terms of providing assistance and trying to build capabilities is Ukraine. Right. So, we focus quite a bit, and we've had a joint action plan with Ukraine uh, mm -hmm. to counter nuclear smuggling since 2006. So, you know, at various stages in its recent past, you know, we've we've been working very closely with Ukraine, as do a lot of other donor countries and yeah. do a lot of other, you know, countries that, you know, are interested in trying to um, build capabilities and to make sure materials are safe. The second thing I would say is although we disagree with Russia about a lot, right. we do not disagree with them that terrorists should not get their hands on nuclear yeah, right. weapons or yeah. nuclear materials. So that's why we've been able to cooperate so successfully with right. Russia as the two co-chairs of the global initiative uh, or 
what we call it in shorthand, the G-I-C-N-T. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they have not, their enthusiasm is not diminished for it mm -hmm. one bit. And they're every bit as active as the co-chair of this initiative as they were on day one. And if anything, you know, they, they continually redouble their commitment to it. It's actually a bright spot in our relationship with Russia. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a cause for optimism. <laughs> well, I mean, there's very few bright spots you can point toward, but the Global Initiative has sort of continued uninterrupted, and yeah. we've never lost our focus or our, you know, kind of common commitment to, right. to, to run this, um, you know, in a way that it is actually going to reduce the threat. Mm -hmm. So they're very committed to that. And, you know, as much as we do, they do not want to see materials fall into the wrong hands. So we might not have close bilateral cooperation with Russia. We right. may not be working with them, you know, sort of on, um, you know, the sort of building capabilities line of effort as we might be with a country like Ukraine or right. with, you know, several other of our partners. But we at least have some confidence that they're doing the things yeah. as we would, you know, they're a different country than Ukraine, too, and yeah. a different country than most of our other partners. They have a lot of capability on their own, and they are able to, you know, protect, um, you know, their institutions and their facilities and their materials. Do we think that we would, you know, improve their capabilities by, you know, deeper cooperation with them? Yeah, I think we do, but, um, you know, we're kind of not at the place in the overall bilateral relationship where, you know, we're going to be able to kind of do new things mm -hmm. with them. So, you know, I think when we talk about looking for opportunities to cooperate, you know, more in depth with Russia, mm -hmm. this is one thing we're thinking about. You know, right. we would like to do more with them, but, you know, the current environment and the current level of trust makes that very hard. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a couple of questions just oh, in terms. Can I just go back real quick? Yes, yep, please. Real quick. Um, so my office doesn't really do the nonproliferation of biological weapons. Okay. okay. So I don't want to say very much about that. Um, you Absolutely. Know, I, 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 I think there's a lot that could be said, and, and it's a great point. And, you know, certainly thinking back to the anthrax scare mm -hmm. of, you know, immediately post 9-11, uh, you know, I know that we're doing quite a bit mm -hmm. uh, in this realm as well. I just don't want to say anything too sure. specific because it'll be wrong. Truly. Sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we understand. We understand. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I think that my question is, is about just gener generally speaking about the function. Um, two layers. First, when you, when you initially, when you initially started to fulfill this function, what was the part of the job that surprised you the most in terms of understanding what exactly needed to be done in order to, to, to effectively accomplish what your objectives were? And the second one is in terms of the public understanding of uh, the function itself. What do you think um, the American public doesn't really know about how you execute what you execute, but should be known and should be more widely understood? So, you know, I, I guess I would start here. Um, you know, when before I joined this bureau, I mean, I certainly, we and we haven't talked a lot about it, but, you know, I certainly have had a lot of experience in my foreign service career in security issues. Mm -hmm. What I haven't had a lot of experience with is nuclear security issues. Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit, but not much. So, you know, I mentioned that the U.S. and Russia agreed to create the Global Initiative to Combat Nuclear Terrorism while I was in Moscow. 
I can't tell you very much about that because I wasn't focused on it at the time. And, right. you know, even two years ago, if you had asked me, what does the Global Initiative do? I wouldn't have been able to tell you, uh, you know, it, it would be like my, my answer about biological nonproliferation right. just okay. now. Fair enough. And if you were to ask me, and, and I, you know, I'm sort of ashamed to admit it, but if you were, if you were to ask me about the Nuclear Security Summit two years ago, I wouldn't be able to tell you much about it either. So, you know, I was certainly aware that these mm -hmm. things were going on. And I think, by and large, the American public is aware that these things are going on. But it's kind of like, oh, that's too technical for me. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm glad someone's focused on this, but, you know, I, I, I don't need to really pay attention to the details. And, you know, I'm just glad that there's smart people who are paying attention. So that kind of was my attitude, too. And I'm not going to say that I think the American public needs to pay a lot more attention to these issues because, you know, just being aware that the government is takes the threat seriously and mm -hmm. is doing a lot, a lot across a lot of lanes of effort and at very high levels and across administrations. You know, I mean, that's a, another, I guess, interesting thing I'd say a lot. Uh, you know, it has been in the news lately about, you know, potential budget cuts at the Department of State. Certainly the budget that our the current administration sent to Congress uh, for the Department of State had a, I can't remember the number, 2020s. Well, I think that was the first, yeah. oh, that was the yeah. first proposal and, yeah. you know, went down to 31 or right. 27 yeah. or I, I, I can't remember the exact number. But I've said that, so I'm not being held to it. So. Right, right, yeah, no, no, we'll, we'll, we'll just say around <laughs> 30. 30. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, Congress has its say. So right. we don't know what the final budget for the Department of State will be anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, clearly it's going to be lower. And clearly, um, you know, the, the emphasis of, um, you know, the administration is different than, you know, past administrations when it comes to what it thinks the Department of State should be doing. Actually, when it comes to nonproliferation and nuclear security, we're so far not bearing the brunt of these cuts, mm -hmm. or at least these proposed cuts. So, you know, I think this administration also recognizes the importance of this issue because, you know, I think it's not very difficult for anyone to understand, whether it's, you know, the, the public at large mm -hmm. or, you know, people who are in, you know, universities studying international affairs or, um, you know, people from all walks of life to understand the importance of this issue and, you know, not think or, you know, to reduce kind of our commitment or reduce our level of expertise or the level of resources that we're going to devote to this. You know, it's it's not something that, you know, people are going to think is a good idea. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would say that is the case with with the new administration. All of, you know, all, all the signs and signals that we've seen from this new administration is that it wants, you know, to do just as much as as any administration that has preceded it. Mm -hmm. Maybe in different ways with slightly different focuses. But, you know, that's fine. The commitment to, um, <clears throat> you know, in reducing the risk of an attack by a weapon of mass destruction, you know, is just as evident here as, right. it, as it has been during my entire career in government. So even if you're not focused on the details, as long as you've got the strategy right, the details can fall into mm -hmm. place. Uh, 
I want to circle back around to sort of the, the gap we left uh, <laughs> we left in your career. But really quick, but before we do that, I'm just curious. Um, we we did talk about uh, about non-state actors uh, acquiring um, acquiring weapons and the way you work with other states to ensure that that doesn't happen. But but does this office play any role in supporting uh, uh, the enforcement uh, of measures like the the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with Iran or or a non-proliferation in situations where the United States is working bilaterally or multilaterally to, to contain the spread of nuclear weapons to other states? The short answer is no. Okay. I was just I was curious. I was curious. Okay. Um, so um, I, th I think uh, you, you mentioned that, you know, part of what we hadn't really discussed so much about your past experience, and I think a, a, a solid way of returning back to, to the narrative and picking up from where we left, or where we left off in terms of Indonesia was security. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming that in, in saying that, you're, you're implying that after Indonesia, or even during your time in Indonesia, part of your focus, functionally speaking, was were matters of security. Do you do you want to do you want to kind of pick up the pick up the thread from there? Do I want to elaborate? <laughs> please, please okay. do. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to. And you know, I would say that it, it, well, first of all, I wasn't in Indonesia. I was I was, right, I was the Indonesia right. desk officer right. here in Washington right. in the State Department. And you know, when you're the desk officer of a country, you you basically are. You are the the first point of contact for everything, right. so the whole range of mm -hmm. issues, okay. including security issues. Um, and I had kind of had, you know, intersections with security issues, and even some of the assignments we had talked about already. But as I alluded to, and you know, as you uh, just asked me to elaborate on, yes, my focus on became a little bit more intensive on security after that time. Mm -hmm. But I would say, kind of political military issues. Okay. So um, after Indonesia, I went to Afghanistan, and I was mm -hmm. there for two years. Um, I, was, I was working in provinces. Um, so I wasn't working in Kabul. I wasn't working at, at the embassy. I was sort of embedded with military units who were in provinces responsible for, you know, this was, you know, our strategy in Afghanistan was counterinsurgency. So it's, it's three lines of effort, mm -hmm. security, governance, and development right so you know we had a lot of state folks there state department folks we had a lot of USAID folks there uh, and we had an overwhelming number of you know military forces there and you know they sort of uh, brought the most resources to bear uh, they brought a lot of the even expertise to bear you know and they bore a lot of the brunt of, you know, the strategy and implementing it. And people like me were, you know, brought in to help and to, you know, sort of apply the specific kinds of expertise that we have to to that environment. So mm -hmm. I spent two years doing that. It was, it was an interesting time. Um, you know, it was during the, you know, the, the so-called surge time in Afghanistan. So my first mm -hmm. year was pre-surge and then my second year was post-surge. Mm -hmm. And so you know, really saw firsthand kind of that, how the influx of, you know, new administration focusing on this as a priority and devoting, you know, significantly more resources to it early, you know, after having conducted a kind of strategic review of the situation, um, you know, really did see that ramp up. Mm -hmm. And then after that, <clears throat> I, I went to work uh, for three years at our mission to NATO, 
So this is in Brussels, the North North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Um, I think folks are familiar with it. Yep. Right. Uh, happy to, you know, uh, talk or answer any questions about what it is. But you know, one thing I'll say is that each of the each of the countries that are part of NATO, that are members, that are allies, because it is an alliance. Um, so every every treaty member of NATO is an ally to every other one. Mm -hmm. Um, so every ally to NATO has a an actual delegation in Brussels that works every day to mm -hmm. kind of work out NATO policy and right. negotiate NATO policy with each other. So I went from kind of the mi most micro level when it comes to Afghanistan, working in provinces at the you know battalion level. Uh, you know when it comes mm -hmm. to army sort of hierarchy and terminology. So, you know, at the provincial level, the province level, the battalion level, on the ground in Afghanistan, to then not working at the 30,000-foot level, but actually the 60,000-foot level. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, we have a U.S. policy when it comes to NATO, but then we also want NATO policy to be consistent with U.S. policy. And since the U.S. is such a, you know, major player, the predominant player in, in NATO, you know, our, we do have, you know, um, a certain amount of influence when right. it comes to uh, trying to shape NATO policy. But, you know, the, there are 20, at the time there were 28 uh, NATO allies, now there are 29 with Montenegro mm -hmm. having joined. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, we tried to translate the 30,000 foot into the 60,000 foot and to kind of Adjust, and, you know, that there's some give and take. It requires a little bit of the U.S., you know, sort of adjusting our own policies to what what is within the art of, you know, uh, what our allies are willing mm -hmm. to do in terms of the commitment of forces, in terms of, um, you know, how we're defining the mission mm -hmm. in Afghanistan, um, and, you know, any number of other things that go into, you know, what is the policy. Um, I I did a number of other things when I was at NATO as well. You know, we instituted a uh, missile defense. Um, you know, uh, NATO agreed to adopt a missile defense capability um, during my time. So, you know, then it's what are the 700,000 different steps that are going to take you to actually being able to field that capability. Um, and then we also had operations in Kosovo. There was a NATO operation in Kosovo. Uh, we undertook an operation in Libya during my time there. Um, so, you know, a range of things that I did there. And then after that, I, I spent a year at our embassy in Tripoli in Libya. So sort of started at the micro level with Afghanistan, went right. to the 60,000 foot level with it, with it and Libya, and then went back to the micro level in Libya. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wanted to ask, you, you spoke mm -hmm. nicely earlier about, uh, about dip diplomacy sort of within, dis diplomacy just doesn't happen abroad, it happens within uh, different factions of the United States government, you, you, you help call on the United States government resources before ever, ever turning to, to that other sort of diplomacy, which is the one we conceive of, um, you know, broadly as as just engaging other nations at NATO, um, what was it like turning between coordinating U.S. policy? Um, I'm sure you had to deal a lot with the military uh, and and their policy in regard to NATO. What was it like 
coordinating that and then turning to deal with a situation where you're not you're not in one country because prior to that you've been dealing specifically with one country you're dealing with, with 28 member nations who all have developed different priorities for their militaries their armed forces and uh, you know their foreign policy yeah <clears throat> so I mean I, I really liked my assignment at NATO. I yeah. mean, it, it was really... Yeah, Brussels is a nice <clears throat> city, huh? <laughs> Have you been? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So people, you know, uh, I, I love Brussels, too. I, I You know, I, I had a great time there. I wouldn't say, though, it's in the same category as, like, Paris or Rome. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but it, he likes that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it is a really nice place to spend three years in. Um, you know, real easy to get to any other part of Europe besides NATO, of course. The EU is headquartered in Brussels, right. so you know, um, all of the European countries have to be able to get back and forth pretty easily because right. they're doing the business of, you know, not again, not just NATO, but also the European Union, which is, you know, pr pretty significant part of, you know, um, the foreign policy approach, or or you know, even in a lot of ways, the domestic policy approach for each of the EU member nations. Um, so, you know, again, for me, it was fascinating being at NATO and, and kind of, you know, having to think, uh, you know, across so many different, you know, ranges of, of issues. I think you kind of laid it out nicely that each of these, you know, 28 at the time countries has its own interests, its own policies, its own, you know, uh, background, the way that it's grown up. So I guess the one thing that I would say, um, you know, that's of particular relevance to that is that NATO is not really a military alliance. It is, but what NATO really is, is a political military alliance. So the militaries of the NATO countries don't do anything without political approval. That's number one. And number two, you know, I think you've probably noticed in the current administration, um, you know, the, really the focus on making sure that countries are paying their fair share yeah. and, and contributing their, you know, what, you know, the NATO guideline for what countries should be contributing to defense is. And, you know, a lot of them fall short. Um, so, you know, even under the last administration, there there really was a big focus on trying, you know, really prioritizing countries doing their fair share. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, it's it's pretty clear that he, under the, the new administration and under President Trump, you know, that focus has become even more intensified. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, countries, I think, maybe will start doing more. So, you know, I guess the reason I'm pointing this out is because, you know, Inevitably, as countries do start doing more, the gap between what they want to do and what they can do is going to shrink. Right. So, you know, there will be, I think, fewer situations in the future where, you know, that capability gap exists. And, you know, countries' militaries will be maybe even more naturally aligned with their political ambitions. Um, but, you know, in many cases or in many ways countries political commitment up to now or you know even to some degree in the future is is going to be part of the equation as well so even if a country can't necessarily contribute you know as much as we would want or as much as sometimes even it would want uh, to a particular um, to a particular mission uh, or to a particular priority 
or to, you know, to do whatever, uh, even if it falls short, their political commitment is important. And, you know, they, they, any country can sort of veto what NATO wants to do. And so the fact that, you know, they have provided their kind of political endorsement of X, Y, or Z, whatever it is, you know, that's an important part of the equation as well. So, so just to clarify, if I understand you correctly, there is kind of a <clears throat> counterintuitive element to our insistence on compelling our NATO allies to contribute more in terms of the financial commitment to the, to the alliance itself, insofar as that when we do that, we have to understand and appreciate that when we ask the, our allies to, to really step up and foot more of the bill, in turn, we have to concede a little bit of leverage and political influence in terms of determining outcomes, meaning that maybe diplomatically as a result of an increased commitment from our NATO allies, we're going to have to be a little bit more compromising in terms of accommodating their different priorities and their viewpoints in terms of political and strategic alignments with regard to NATO, generally speaking. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? So what I'll say is that's very well said, and I'll, I'll leave you to have said it. Okay. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, Fair we, enough. we wanted to thank you for sharing your time and experience and expertise with us. It's, it's been a pleasure. And uh, we're happy to have Boston University uh, come down to the State Department and, and develop this, uh, this connection. We appreciate it. Well, it's been truly my pleasure to sit and have this conversation with you. Uh, I've enjoyed it. I hope, um, you know, I hope the folks out in podcast land will uh, <laughs> will enjoy it as well. And, you know, um, leave it at that. Thanks. Thanks. We'll talk Thank to you, you soon in so podcast much. land. <laughs>